Welcome to the Reticle Up Podcast, where I, Three Gun Kenzie, will be interviewing competitive shooters, hunters, fishermen, archers, entrepreneurs, and outdoorsmen. Come learn with me as I interview people from all walks of life, in different disciplines, all across the world, from novices to professionals of all ages. No matter what, everyone has something they can teach you. So come join me on the journey. The Reticle Up podcast is produced in partnership with AmericanFirearms.org. American Firearms' mission is to recommend what works. We believe everyone deserves access to unbiased, helpful information about firearms. And our buying guides, product reviews, and learning resources are designed to help real people find the stuff that will work best for them. Check us out at www.americanfirearms.org. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Red Club podcast. I have Mia Anstein on. Ladies, I got to meet her at a Ruger Rendezvous event, and she is all the things, so I'm going to list these out. So she is the host of the Mac Outdoors podcast, which she had me on uh, not too long ago, so check that one out. But she's also a rancher, a fellow writer in the industry. She's a keynote speaker, and she does hunting guide trips. Um, so here we're here to talk to her about all the things that she does in the industry. Um, Mia, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's going to be fun to trade. And I know I enjoyed having you on my show and getting to learn more about you and sharing you with my audience. I had a lot of people that really liked that episode. So thank you. Thanks for having me. That's great to hear the feedback for sure. <laughs> there was a lot of time. You, you just kind of feel like you have these souls that you connect with when we go to events and then there's not a lot of time to actually get to know someone. So I'm so glad to have you on here. We're all going to learn about Mia today. <laughs> 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 so starting off, I mean, for you, I, I want to know like childhood days, because I feel like you with this industry or just guns in general, you either kind of are born and bred into it, or you kind of find your own way and your own path there. So for you, like, what did that early childhood look like with, with firearms? Yeah, I would say born and bred into it. <laughs> Definitely. Oh. I have as a speaker and how I I got into the firearms industry is I grew up with firearms. I started shooting when I was five years old and that's because my brother was five years older than me and he was learning to hunt. And so my dad didn't want me to have that curiosity about what they were doing. And so he was like, I'm teaching, you know, he was teaching Bubba. So he taught me at the same time and started out with small caliber and actually air guns first and then smaller calibers. And then I think it eight years old, I shot an Uzi. And so it was like, there was no sheltering in my life. They were like, we're going to teach you all of it. And it was all in, but growing up, my parents divorced when I was a teenager. And that's when I, my parents divorced. I lived in a small, small town, tiny place, moved to the city of San Diego. And I realized that a lot of people didn't know about firearms. They didn't know about a lot of things, but they didn't understand guns because a lot of them didn't have them in their house. And so it kind of became my mission to educate people about firearms. <laughs> that, um, before we skip to that part, I want to know, cause I ask junior shooters this all the time, but like, were you aware, I won't say how cool you were, but like, were you aware about the opportunity that, you know, you got to be around guns, shooting Uzis at eight, like how cool is that? Or is that just sort of, again, the normal everyday life for you? No, I think for me, I didn't, I didn't know it was cool. I didn't think that <laughs> I actually, um, kind of thought that I just needed to know this as a responsibility. And that's kind of the way that I approached it, I guess, as a youngster. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was older 
I actually have spoke about this to legislators, but I told you, you know, my parents divorced, we moved to California and my cousin and I were walking home from school one day. We lived with my cousin for a short time, but we were walking home from school and we're coming around the bend and a friend's house was on the corner and there was caution tape, police tape around the yard and around the house. And you know, being kids, we're like, oh my gosh, you know, somebody must have been robbed and, you know, like watched too, too much TV and we're thinking these things. But what ended up happening is one of the kids had found their brother's gun, had brought it over to the house in the backpack. And I see you putting your hand to your mouth and it, just thinking about it right now, I still get chills thinking about it. But what happened is what you and I, and probably most of your listeners always dread is they had only known about guns on TV. They didn't know safety rules and one of them shot the other one. So there was there was a death in the house that day. And so that's when actually like now I realize how empowered I was and how my dad trusted me enough to empower me with the knowledge of firearms and safety. And I just wish that every child, every adult, I wish that everybody could know firearm safety so that incidents like that don't happen because it's not the gun's fault. You and I know that. Um, but that's where, you know, over the years I realized like, wow, I have all this strength and knowledge and I just need to share it with everybody. So yeah, as a youngster, I didn't understand it, but when that happened, I was like, wow, like that would have never happened in my house. Right. Right. There is a level of responsibility as a parent or just in general teaching kids firearms uh, rather than taking them out of the home or rather than making it a fearful item because kids are curious. It doesn't matter if it's guns or something else, right? Like that curiosity is going to get the best of them and they're going to get into it. They're going to find it. They're going to get into it. And they're not going to know what to do. So when I talk to, I've had parents on this podcast, I've had other junior shooters, like I said, on this podcast, and they've talked about that responsibility is not like when they're 10 years old, that's the safe time to teach them. It's It depends on the kid, but like you can teach them young if you can just start with safety rules, maybe like air guns, like you mentioned, or 22 caliber, even airsoft. If you can teach them young, why wouldn't you do that? Like you're saying, like kids bring in a, to other people's houses that maybe aren't familiar with that in the home. There's so many things that that just left a horrible pit in the bottom of my stomach, Mia. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm, thank you for sharing. I mean, we've all kind of had those situations in college. There were two twin girls um, at, at my college, and one of the the boyfriends like brought a gun to the I guess sorority house or fraternity house, whatever it was, and shot one of the twin sisters. So it happens. It doesn't matter what age, doesn't matter if it's kids or adults. There's no, you know, there's no level of of how to come back from that other than teaching firearm safety rules, firearm safety rules over and over and over again. It shouldn't take that for people to wake up, right? And I think a big thing nowadays, something that. I've been learning and trying to understand more because currently, I mean, before you started recording, we talked about, I do a lot of advocacy and I do a lot of work going, talking to legislators and testifying on issues and just trying to help people understand firearms. And, and for me, a lot of it's hunting as well, but I don't understand what's going on in our society. And so I've been trying to study and figure out like what's going on. And a lot of it, I think is all I said, mentioned television, Hollywood type stuff. Like we see this and okay, you know, they're running around with their fingers on the triggers and they're shooting and shooting and whatever's going on. But I, um, read, what is his name? Um, it's called assassination generation. I have one here on my shelf. Um, Lieutenant 
Colonel Dave Grossman. I read his book, Assassination Generation, and it's just kind of, it's it's a big one to swallow. I don't know. We're getting into some deep stuff today. It wasn't really what I planned or maybe not what you planned, but... I think it's needed. Yeah. But with this book, I had to read it in chunks and I actually ended up getting the audio book so I could listen to it here and there. I I travel a lot. So I listened to it and it's pretty scary. Like this generation of youngsters that don't understand the compassion of other, you know, having compassion on other human beings. And this has a lot to do with video games. It's called video games, aggression, and the psychology of killing. But it kind of talks about how these youngsters are playing these video games and our minds don't know reality from this virtual stuff. And the way they're killing is actually stuff that our troops years ago were not able to do, you know, um, because their mindset's different. So I don't know, things are getting a little out there in as far as what's going on in society. And that's one of my goals when I go speak is just to kind of bring compassion and the human aspect back to life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we have your voice. Um, again, I hate that you went through that too, even starting growing up to to have that. Cause I feel like that does motivate you to share your story and what could have been different. So, wow. Um, <laughs> there, there's, there's so much to talk about there, but so for you, like the, you know, you were around it, you get it. Like if you're, if you're raised right, if we teach the right people, the right things, again, doesn't matter what age. So even as adults, like I have people ask me questions, they, they go home. What's frustrating for me on a level. I don't know if you get this with your students is I have female students that come to me say, Hey, my husband's military. He's deployed, but he left me a fully loaded Glock, you know, next to my bed. I don't even know how to unload the gun. I don't even know how to clear the gun. I've had a military wife before call me and said, I need you to come over to my house and unload the shotgun for me. And I'm happy to do that. But we need to train women or just people in general, uh, you know, around loaded firearms, how to clear them themselves, how to understand mm-hmm. how they function, because that stuff, that is really terrifying to think about that they have no clue what to do with that tool. Right. And that that's also, I mean, going back to the youngsters, that's also something that's important as a parent. And I actually had a lady come over that she didn't have somebody bring the gun to her, but it's a similar thing. Like, I don't know how to load. I don't know how to unload. I don't have one in my house, but what if I come across one? And I was like, wow, you're coming to me asking me this. And had I not had that experience as a youngster, I may not have taken it as seriously. I'd have been like, yeah, yeah, you don't even own a gun. But she just wanted to know how and wanted to learn how to cycle a gun, wanted to know how to shoot a gun, what they do. She was curious. And so it's something that I actually take that and it's exciting. It's fun. I try to make it a positive experience for them. And it's definitely needed more and more. And something we do in our community and I say we do it, but we haven't since the pandemic shut down stuff, but we have a woman's outdoor weekend and we have different stations and there's about 70 women that come through. They shoot 22 handguns. They shoot higher caliber handguns. If they want to bring their own, they can bring it. And then we shoot muzzle loaders, shotguns, high caliber rifles, and and then archery. And so they get to experience everything. And some of them, we had a lady from Japan that had never seen a firearm in her life. And she was terrified like to even touch the first gun. She was like trembling, but it was so cool to see her progression as she went through and that she was like, oh, wow, this is, it's, 
just a tool. It's just, you know, an inanimate object. And she was shooting really well and very confident in the end. And she didn't want to buy a gun or anything. She just wanted to know how they work. And I I wish we could get more women or individuals in general to come and experience and learn. Same. I know we... I don't want to make this much about me. I just, I'm sharing this because we connected about Gals Day the, the yeah. time on your podcast. I had three women show up that had never even seen, touched, or held a firearm before. And by awesome. the day, they're blowing up Tannerite with the rest of them. And I'm like, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it feels cool. so good. <laughs> it feels good. And it's like, okay, yes, it's scary at first, right? And and we forget about this. We hunt. So we, we use the guns as tools or what have you. We have a self-defense carry gun. But guns can also be fun and they should be fun. And so getting to the point where like people are smiling, enjoying shooting, like, oh, this is addictive, like fun. I'm like, yes, that's a win. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And so, I mean, you compete and I think competition is fun. I don't compete. I just don't have time. And, you know, I I don't know how much time you put into training, but I don't have time to do training because I'm doing all so many other things. Um, But I think competition is fun, you know. It is. It's good to talk smack a little bit with the boys and go out there and blow off some steam. And like, you never see the same stages twice. And there's always a problem solving solution to it. I mean, you've got to figure out your way around, whether it's gear or an obstacle or what have you. And so it tests the mind. And honestly, 80% of shooting is what's between your head telling you what you can and can't do. And that's where I'm envy you as a kid is like, as a kid, you're like, Hey, if I handed you a rifle, you know, as a five-year-old, you're like, go shoot that hundred yard target. You're like, okay. Meanwhile, like as an adult, the first time seeing that, I'd be like, I-, I can't do that. Why are we so negative as adults, like afraid of things? Whereas kids are fearless when they have that right. fearless because they, they find it like so enjoyable. They don't think about the complications of what it takes to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get that, but, um, okay. I want to talk about your hunting. So the hunting life too, this is what fascinates me. Cause I only got to grow up duck hunting, but I want to know like when you, what was your first hunt? Do you remember what it was and what you did? So growing up hunting, as I said, my brother was learning how to hunt when I was a youngster. So he was, him and my dad were the ones that were hunting and they would go like before school, they would go hunting on the weekends, they'd go hunting and I'd kind of stay behind at home when they would tag an animal, they'd bring it home. And so I learned how to field dress also using knives and stuff as a five-year-old. And the thing is, as you said, different ages it depends on how mature they are, what kind of responsibility you can give them. But I was helping my dad, you know, field dress and cut steaks and stuff as, as a five-year-old. And so I wasn't actually out hunting and didn't hunt on my own until as an adult. And what happened is I, I would go with my uncles, I would guide them. I didn't realize that I was guiding them at the time, but you know, one of my uncles, he had a heart condition and he couldn't walk really well and he just couldn't keep up with everyone else. And so he and I hung back and I was like, well, hang out with him. And, you know, we kind of sat on the, set on the hill and had some coffee in the morning and waiting for the sun to come up. And he's like, do you see something over there? And I'm like, get my binoculars. I'm like, yeah, there is a, there's a cow elk coming out of the brush. Like, okay, cool. You know? So, and then I'm, I'm like scanning and scanning. And then I saw antlers and I was like, there's a bull in there. You know, he hasn't come out yet, but all these cow elk are coming out. And my uncle, like he was so bummed because he always wanted to shoot a bull elk. He had shot lots of animals, but never had shot a bull elk. And he, you know, I'm like, there's one coming, there's one coming. And so eventually all the cows are out there eating and we're like, okay, like maybe he's not going to come out. But of course he came out and, you know, I told him, wait, there's another cow behind him. And I didn't realize like all of that's part of guiding. And it's something that 
being a youngster, if you can include your children in your activities, they learn by being with you. And so I, you know, tell him when, okay, go ahead and shoot. He drops this beautiful six by six elk. And he was like, had a tear in his eyes because he thought that with his health condition, you know, it, elk hunting is a lot of work. And so for us to be in this location and be able to get his bull, that was a blessing. And he was just like, so happy. And that's one of my fondest memories. And I think I was like 14 or 15 at the time. I don't know. I'm not even sure. Um, but it really made an impact on me that he was hunting for health mm-hmm. and to have healthy meat and, you know, all this stuff to make him feel better. But then growing up and getting older, my dad got tired of hunting and he was just like, he'd buy a beef and he'd split a beef with me. And I was like, okay, you know, like we'll split a beef and he'd give me all the hamburger, which I, I was like, beggars can't be choosers. I'll take the hamburger. Sure. <laughs> but I was like, some steaks would be good. And, you know, and so I ended up, going and starting hunting on my own. And, um, first I used to take my daughter with me and we'd shoot grouse and turkeys and birds. And so, like you said, bird hunting, bird hunting is a great place to start because you get more than one opportunity. It's not like an elk where you have one tag, one and done. Right. Maybe Um, one for every 16 years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that was fun. And it also helped teach her about the cycle of conservation and, you know, that where food comes from and stuff like that. So it was super fun. But yeah, I didn't start hunting myself until I was an adult. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You guided though, and that you recognize that that is, that was guiding like that you were doing before, because a lot of people they don't realize they even learned. Yeah. Mr. Miyagi do and uh, can go (laughs) share that back to him. And and having patience is a lot of a part of the hunt is waiting on the right one and knowing you're going to make that shot. I mean, there's, there's so much that goes into it. Um, that patience game is hard. Yeah, definitely. And especially something that I, when I had my daughter and she started hunting, she started big game or not big game hunting, but Turkey hunting when she was six in Colorado, you can't hunt big game till you're 12. But helping her with her hunts, I, I, I mentor a lot. I guide a lot and I, I'm actually a volunteer hunter education instructor, but I always talk about stages of hunting. And to me, like they teach five stages, but I always go above and beyond. And I'm like, if you can be a mentor, like that is the ultimate because you can go back to that beginner stage. Like when she got her first turkey, I was like, oh my gosh, like this turkey is coming for 200 yards. And I'm like, like, breathe me, breathe. And I'm like trying to help her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope she gets it. I hope she gets it. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> like got to experience the first again with her. <laughs> I enjoy that more, whether it's shooting or hunting or whatever. I think I get more excitement and happiness off of watching someone do something else, like for the first time or something exciting like that. Like I think you and I are similar in that regard where why is that so? You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know. I like to do good things for other people, you know, and I, you saying that we just had some friends out earlier this turkey season that had never hunted Miriam's turkeys. And I was so excited for them. And one day we kind of split up and they went this way and we went this way. And this, this turkey comes right in front of us. And I was like, you know, I can't shoot a turkey before they get a turkey. I was like, well, wait, I have more time. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so what was your first, you, your first big game hunt? My first big game hunt was a cow elk hunt. And 
Yeah. Well, and I shouldn't say that was the first hunt. That's the first an- big game animal that I a tagged. Yeah. 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 I had hunted elk ugh, for like four or five years. And, and like I said, solo by myself, a couple of boyfriends like wanted to tag along and they're like, it, it, my husband still jokes about it because I'm like, all they wanted to do was like, go make out in the woods, you know? And it's like, and when I met Hank, he was an outfitter. He owned an outfitting business, you know, and, and I had been hunting and stuff, but he laughed when I told that story. Cause it took me so long to catch up to an elk, but it was like, if I was too far in there, I'm like, okay, how am I going to pack this out? And, you know, my, that was kind of early. It was before cell phones really. So right. it wasn't as though I was going to be able to go to the top of the hill to get a cell signal to call somebody. Um, so I had different experiences where it was like, mm, it, like you said, patience. I'm like, should I go for it or should I wait? Yep. And so there was all of that. And then the first one I got was an elk, a cow elk. And that one just was super perfect. It was an easy pack out. It was easy to get out and um, just success. And so since then, I I don't know how many elk I've shot, like 30. <laughs> I am. That's on my bucket list. I'm at zero <laughs> bucket list. I've never even hunted them. I just want to hear their voice. Like I've seen them in the Smoky Mountains, but like just, I don't know why, but I like the call. Like, mm-hmm. I think most people, most hunters, like an elk bugling is, like you said, magical. It's the ultimate thing. Yeah. It gives me skin chills. Oh my gosh. Okay. So for you, again, I don't know anything about packing out because I haven't done that yet. So what does that look like for, in terms of like gear, whether you have, again, do you leave it overnight if you can't pack it all out? Do you put it in a pack? Like, Oh, wow. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So what a pack out looked like. So at the time when I was by myself, it would look like disassembling the elk. You field dress it. You're going to take the quarters off each leg off. You're going to take off the back straps, tenderloins. I usually take as much neck meat and brisket meat as you can. And that's what's required in Colorado. You don't have to take the ribs out or any of the organs unless you want them. But at the time it would have meant, okay, I'm going to take one leg, strap it to my backpack and you're going to march out with that on your back. And then you're going to have to come back. And so it's minimum five trips. If you have a bull, you know, to take the head as well, because you have to take the head to, um, you have the, the, um, proof of sex is either the body organs, but also the antlers. You've got to take those to show that it was of legal size. And so that would have meant, you know, these trips back and forth with, and if you can, you know, the first trip, of course, you're going to take by yourself and then go call friends and ask for help, you know? Um, but now I, we have like 22 horses and mules and we feed them year round because they do the work for us. So, um, now what it means is that I'm going to have horses. If I go in for like a season, if it's usually five days, some of the seasons here are nine days, then I, I can pack my camp in. I can take food. I can take, you know, um, take my bedroll and my tent and I can take more gear where at the time before I was day hunting. And so it was in and out type trips. I wasn't camping at the time. Um, and even when with my dad and my uncles, it was more day hunting when yeah. we, we would head out hunting. But when I met Hank, him being an outfitter, he, he had, you know, all the gear and I grew up with horses. So I'm like, I know horses, but I just hadn't 
packed. And so he's taught me how to pack. And once you get an animal, you're going to again, quarter it because an elk's going to weigh about a thousand pounds and you're not going to carry that out. I mean, tractors, yes, but (laughs) Um, so you're going to quarter it up. You have to balance them in the horse's packs because the pack saddle has to ride where it's not going to chafe them or cause any soreness on their bodies. And you can't overpack them. So you're going to need two, three horses, depending on what you're getting. (laughs) I have been out hunting and one of my hunts, it was the last day of the season. And my husband and I was, we just took our riding horses that day. And so we ended up packing everything on our saddle horses and we walked out. So (laughs) it works. It works. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's incredibly cool experience. I think, I mean, and I know outfitters, like they'll have depending on where you go, like they'll have the pack out like mules or horses or what have you. But I have seen the people that do it on their back and they just climb up there, get some, come back down, climb back up like that. Yeah. I love backpacking and hiking. So it sounds fun, but I know how challenging that is. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I still do. Um, I think four years ago I shot a buck in an area. I had dropped my daughter off at school and I was like, I'll just go day hunt while she's at school and then I'll go back and get her. Well, I got a buck like first thing in the morning and is in an area, there's no cell service. And I was like, well, I can hike down to the truck. I can drive to cell service, come back, or I can just make the, you know, what deer is quite a bit smaller. I think it was two or three trips I made to get the deer out, but I just kind of, you know, deboned him, put him in my backpack, packed him out. And it was like in the amount of time that took, it would, it would have been longer to get somebody there with horses to help me. So, and then I have a really nice, you can call it a trophy. People call different things trophy, but I have a 340 inch bull elk that I got here in Colorado, which is a pretty big elk. And that one where I shot him, it was archery season. And I shot it down in like a hell hole. And we couldn't, there's so much beetle kill and down timber that we didn't want to lame up a horse trying to get a horse down to it. So that one, same thing, we deboned the elk and hiked it all straight up the mountain. And I'm like, I have horses for this, but <laughs> but it's part of the reward is the work, you know? Yes. Oh, hundred percent. I, I, I hunted as an adult, but like, I've never not tried to fill dress my own deer. I wasn't able to do it like hundred percent the first time by myself, but since then I always bring my own knives and say hello to, to the guys. I'm like, Hey, I'm gonna hang this up and just go to work. Is that okay? And they're like, you're the weirdest person we know, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to me. Yeah. And to I think it. some people really do enjoy it. And I have, I have customers or clients that want to do it. And then I have others that don't. And I'm like, if you want to great. And if you don't great too, yeah. it doesn't bother me either way. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Exactly. I mean, it's just that I like to learn because I know that there's going to be a day that shit hits the fan and I'm going to need to know how. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Important stuff. Do you you have like a primary rifle build and scope loadout that you mainly hunt like big game with or do you have different ones? So being a writer, I have different ones. I mean, you get stuff to review. So I I couldn't tell you how many rifles I have in the safe. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I used to use the hashtag more guns than shoes. That was my hashtag. Um, but my favorite, it, it is <laughs> typical women. We are right. Uh-huh. Yep. Like, wow. I never. Okay. That hashtag's coming back now. Keep going. <laughs> but my favorite nowadays that I've, that I, if I don't have something that I need to write about, I always take, I have a Tika T3X Hunter. 
and uh, it has a Steiner optic on it and that's my go-to. And then I have a silencer central suppressor on it. And that thing is just like, I I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. (laughs) My best friend, one of my friends shot a Tika a long, long time starting out in PRS since then she's built again, but the Tikas are great. Um, What suppressor model? That, yeah, I would have to look. I don't even know what model that one is. Because I know they have like the Harvester, the Harvester Evo, but those it's, are bottles. Yeah. I, this one I've had for like four or five years. I would have to look it up and see. Okay. I've got one yeah. in jail right now, so I can't wait to get <laughs> Yeah, and We bought two this year at SCI at the convention that we ordered two of the new ones. And um, so that we don't have to keep swapping them from gun to gun. Yes. We're like, we'll just get a couple more. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you one per, please. <laughs> and you know, when I put the suppressor on that Tika, and as I said, I've swapped it from a couple different firearms. But when I first took it hunting, you know, I got it and reviewed it the first time, you know, out bench gun and out at the range. And then I was like, I'm going to take this hunting, you know, because it was, it was still on the gun. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to take it. And I was worried that it was just going to be too long and cumbersome to handle. And it's not at all, no. not at all. And it's just part of, you know, part of hunting. You've got to watch where your muzzle is and stuff like that. But to have that out in the field is a dream. And I'd, I went to the Sako plant in Finland and toured there and they actually took us hunting in Russia and stuff like that. But yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's where I, that's, I used to write for Beretta when they had, they actually used to have a staff of writers and I was one of their, one of their content creators or um, columnists, but when we went there, they all use suppressors out there. And I'm like, why in America are suppressors just viewed as something so negative when really it's a great thing. They, they don't disrupt all the other wildlife. Yes. You can still hear a shot kind of, but you know, it's like, it saves so many other things. I don't understand why we don't use them more. <laughs> I love them. I went from zero to like 12 in like a couple of weeks. So it's very, very bad. <laughs> <laughs> Now I was, I was actually, I just shot a match this past weekend and then I didn't realize you could run suppressed AKs and I was like, next year I'm oh. suppressing, right? I was like a match because they have to pick up the time. So it's still a little bit harder and they just got to be really close. But I'm like, I'm bringing all the guns suppressed and I don't care. They're going to have to get up on there, but shoot for fun. Yeah. And so do you notice if you're competing and if you have a suppressor, you're making better shots because you're not having any recoil. anticipation or recoil flinch and all of that. So yeah. 100%. Um, when I'm hunting, said, I see that. Yeah, hunting for sure. I mean, even PRS, like I shoot, um, I've only shot suppress. I mean, like I haven't shot that many matches, but I ask a lot of shooters about like why muzzle break, why, why you know, having a suppressor. It just depends on, I know accuracy is a big thing with them, but also just the recall management. I like the way a suppressor feels when you shoot for sure. Yeah. 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 And actually thinking of that, having it on my Tika, I had been at a women's event teaching and that that rifle's a 270 caliber and some of the ladies are older they're fragile <laughs> um, and i was like well i don't really want them to hurt yep. themselves or to be afraid or anything like that and that i had had the suppressor on that 270 for that event and you know 50 women shot that suppressor and all of them were just like wow like you know it's it, actually and then there's a few that are like oh my gosh that's so big and i'm like oh my gosh should i take the suppressor off for you and see <laughs> yeah so I'm I'm a big fan I'm a big fan of that um I wanted to ask you going back to hunting if you know this off top of your head what's the longest kill shot that you've made while hunting 
an animal. You know what? Um, we all practice long range shots. And I mean, I, you know, thousand yard shots, whatever I, all of my guns I can do. Well, all of the higher caliber rifles I can do long range shots with. And actually some of the smaller ones we do just for fun, but I wouldn't for hunting. Um, but when I've been hunting and, I've never shot an animal at further other than coyotes at further than 300 yards. Okay. And yeah. coyotes is probably 700 and 800 yards and cool. some, some long stuff. Yeah. That's so cool. Okay. The, the predator hunting stuff fascinates me too. I wish I had land or grew up like as just as you have, cause it is really cool. <laughs> um, so you've been hunting, I assume like under thermal and night vision for a long time, even growing up maybe, or just seeing the um, uh, the thermal and night vision stuff, I didn't get started with that till about 12 years ago. FLIR had sent something to review for an article. And with that was actually just like this giant binocular thing, you know, like their original stuff. And now it's funny because everything's so compact and, you know, so much smaller. But I actually only got my first, I have an ATN Thor and I got that a year or two ago. Okay. Oh, and here, um, we also had somebody had sent some night vision and it didn't work to review um, for some nighttime coyote hunting, but we can't do a lot of nighttime hunting here unless you get permission from the game wardens and let them know. And it has to be on private property and all this stuff. So hmm. we don't do a lot of nighttime stuff. That's frustrating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for, for the, the ones that you have, at least, um, you know, I, I know me and a couple of buddies just recently went hunting. We got a whole bunch of flack online for killing hogs. Right. And what people don't know, and I would love to hear your perspective on this is how invasive some of these animal species are, how detrimental they are to the land management and to the animals that you actually want on your property. So can you speak to, you know, what that looks like as someone who like owns land, what they need to do, like yeah. what predators actually cause like harm. Yeah. And I actually just wrote an article about var varmint hunting and gear, and it's actually for Shooting Industry Magazine, which is a magazine for the retailers. But I kind of did it in a back-end view to try to educate them about the importance of varmints and predators and why they need to be managed also. Mm -hmm. But being a landowner, we have two ranches here in Colorado, and prairie dogs are another animal that I've shot at long distance. And that, if you want to hone in your skills, um, your target acquisition and your trigger control, prairie dogs are an excellent way to do that without, um, you know, like sacrificing a big game animal. Cause that's why I don't shoot a lot of stuff at long distance because I don't want to wound a big game kill. animal. Right. Yeah. Right. And, but those prairie dogs destroy the land. They eat, you know, one den of prairie dogs will eat as much as one of my cows. But then they also, they're eroding the environment. And we had one of our friends, he was our farrier. He had his horse on our property and there had been a storm and we had had all the horses in the arena and um, this storm comes rolling in a hailstorm. So we just opened the arena and let them all out. And of course, all the horses take off just hauling butt because they're worried about this hail and lightning. And his horse hit a prairie dog hole and flipped over and broke his leg and we had to put him down. What? And so that is a huge, big thing. And then us as people, the kids laugh. They tell this story all the time. We're gathering cows one day and 
I didn't have my horse out. It was tied up in the arena and I'm just running gates for the guys and they've got the horses and they're pushing the cows into the arena. Well, there's one cow, it's, it's going like off the other way. So I take off running and I'm not a runner guys. This is probably partly why I don't compete either. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but I, I run if something's chasing me or if I'm chasing something, you know, so, but I'm running to block this cow and I'm like, well, you know, like trying to, and I take off running and I hit this prairie dog hole and I go flying up in the air and like Superman sideways go flying and skid across. And fortunately what happened, it was that I felt my foot go into that hole. I used the other foot and like kicked myself. And that's what launched me was my other foot. Cause I was like, if, if I would have went in there, I would have surely broken my ankle or, you know, something would have not been well, but that cow, it was to finish that part of the story, the cow just like froze and like looked at me and turned around and went back to the herd. She was like, this is a crazy woman. <laughs> that is actually funny. Not to be you, but to watch that happen. <laughs> and Hank and Jordan were just like, what is she doing? <laughs> but the moral of the story is I was trying to not kill myself in a prairie dog hole. So. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So those are bad. Yeah. Um, and so the erosion is terrible. They, prairie dogs, um, the coyotes, they also can come and they'll eat the cows. Um, if you have first time cattle, they're called heifers. And the first time they birth, they sometimes can have trouble because their hips aren't spread or, you know, stuff can go wrong. So same with first time mothers in human life too. Um, but what will happen is they'll hear those cows struggling, the coyotes will, and they'll come and they'll eat the calf and the back end of that mama cow while they're alive. It's horrid. Oh and so um, coyotes will do that. Wolves will do that. There's a lot of different predators that will do that. But, you know, aside from those other predators that people don't understand need to be managed. And you talked about starting out bird hunting. Foxes eat the turkey nest. They'll eat the eggs out of them. Um, bobcats, there's, uh, all skunks, raccoons, they all raid bird nests. And that's the thing here is just on our ranches, we had a ton of turkeys and all of a sudden we didn't have any turkeys. Well, we had bobcats, foxes, and skunks move in. And cause I have game cameras all over the place. I use spy point game cameras and they just send stuff to my phone. And so we see what's going on. So we start trapping and we didn't wipe them out. We still have some, um, but you diminish their numbers and now their turkeys are back. And so it's, it's like that predator management and varmints. I mean, we talk about varmints, but managing them, it helps the other populations as well. So you're not wiping out any single bird. I mean, prairie chickens are, you know, endangered and different stuff like that. So there's a lot of reason to yeah. go and shoot these animals or hunt them. And if you're in an area where you can do it with night vision, that ATN is awesome because you can actually see the spots on the bobcat. Like you can identify that. I talked about the old school stuff. The old school stuff is like, oh, there's a blur there. It might be, yeah, it might be a dog. It might be a, you know, a rabbit. We don't know what it is, but now like literally you can see the spots on the bobcat at night. That's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, you mentioned trapping. This has actually intrigued me. I just shot with uh, buddy Josh Frey like that traps beavers and stuff, and he'll actually mm -hmm. eat them. But how do you set traps for specific animals, and what does that look like? Well, and trapping varies from state to state. Yeah. In Colorado, we have what they call humane trapping, and it's 
box traps or cage traps. I, I can catch the neighbor's dog in there and freely let it go. It's not going to get hurt. It's just a box that has a trip plate on there. Okay. And that triggers the door to slam closed. And there you there are different things you can use for bait. We use sardines and oysters. We also use attractants. So when we go waterfowl hunting, we'll save duck wings or, you know, dove wings when we're out hunting. And you hang those in an air in the air near the cage and it'll attract bobcats. They like to see that and they'll come in the area. So there's a lot of different sets that you can do depending on what you're trying to trap. But they're also in other areas you can use um footholds and snares and different things like that, that also you can let the animals go. And I actually have an interview. I don't know when I'm, when it's scheduled to publish, but I interviewed Sky Clark and she is a trapper. Like that's just what she does. And she talks a lot about all those other methods that actually work a lot better than these box traps. Cause like it's very difficult to get a coyote to go into a box and wolves. We don't have wolves in my area yet, but up in Northern Colorado, we have wolves and you'll never get a wolf to go into the box. Wow! So it's, yeah, they're, they're just a little more challenging to use and definitely take some practice in the setup. How did you learn all of this? (laughs) (laughs) What does your Google searches look like on a day? Do you do you as a writer ever wonder like oh my gosh if I ever get investigated like uh-huh. the I've things I'm like uh-huh. yeah I figure out that I'm like she was I, googling this and this and this I question this has happened actually the last year I question more or less what I should and shouldn't post anymore and there is a lot that I don't post and there's a lot that I can't and there's a lot that huh does this give my cer- certain things like this away or my location or should I even review like mm, I'm gonna just keep that one. Yeah, they actually have the same. And so I mean, wonder if all writers are dealing with that now, because I used to be pretty free about everything that I would share, but right. and, and not as much anymore. And <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. And then too, I'm like, I, I don't, ha- I don't. <laughs> yeah, but so I learned a lot of it just from I live in the country. So I live in Southwest Colorado. And as I told you, where I grew up, I lived 15 miles out of town. And the town at the time was like 1600 people. So I lived, I grew up in the country. And so going from there to the city, like I said, it was like eye-opening. My family lived there. So I had visited, you know, but it was very eye-opening to live there and see that like people didn't know where they could go fishing or hiking or anything, you know, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, But now where I live, I live near Durango, Colorado. And as I said, I have two ranches. I live in the country, but when you have something that's coming and taking your chickens and you have something that's taking your ducks and your geese or even your dogs, you know, um, you want to figure out how to protect your animals. And part of that is building, you know, good perimeter fences for them so that things can't get into their pens or whatever. But also if you can, that's actually how we got started trapping was the ducks and the chickens. There was a skunk that was attacking them. And so my first, my very first bow kill was a skunk. (laughs) That's awesome, actually. (laughs) Um, But that's my daughter in high school. She trapped a lot and it was to protect the animals near the house. And then it wasn't until later when we noticed the wild turkeys had, you know, that they had disappeared, that we started the perimeter of our, our ranch. We kind of will trap around there sometimes too. Wow. That's incredible. I like all the learnings that you've been through because that's a lot. Um, (laughs) Now, 
this might be not off the cuff and you get some me these things later. But the other thing that I've noticed is like you and I were born and bred into this, even though like I wasn't 100% in like you are with the hunting or the guiding. Um, there's too much, I would say too many barriers to entry for people wanting to learn how to hunt, how to fish, where are the seasons, what are the properties you can go to, what are the limits, what are, what does the fish even look like? Let me just talk about that. The species alone is confusing. Um, you already talked about like having the antler length, making sure it's of legal size, whatever that looks like. So all of these things, even for seasoned hunters, what are some resources, whether it's books, websites, where do people go if they are maybe even brand new and want to be able to do these things? How do they even get started? Yeah. So that's a question that I'm asked a lot and I go speak a lot about it. And I think next year I'll be in Pennsylvania speaking about it, but it's the biggest barrier and it's also a barrier to helping people understand conservation and actually what conservation means is they don't understand all of the whole picture like you're describing. But the very first thing that I think everybody, whether you want to hunt or not, is go take a hunter education class because it does give you a foundation. Um, in, in Colorado, we only require 10 hours. And if you take that class, you learn about habitat, you learn about wildlife management, you also learn about why people hunt and how people hunt and firearms is something that you'll learn about as well. And then beyond that, like our state's DNR, we offer like mentored hunts for women and youngsters. Oh. And and that's cool, but I have more men private message me that are like in their 20 and 30 year old age yeah. that don't come from hunting families. And they're like, what do I do? Where do I get started? And they're kind of left out. And it's something that really kind of bums me out because I'm like, yay, go women, Who's go it? kids. But, but also yeah. I'm like, these guys really want to learn. So we need to help them. And so if you look at organizations like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, SCI, the Colorado Bowhunters Association, National Wild Turkey Federation, a lot of them have people that will mentor you. So if you're not a woman or a youngster, reach out to them. And what I always suggest is, or, you know, like reach out to someone like me, like, hey, Mia, can I just tag along with you on one of your hunts? I actually had one of the Colorado Parks and Wildlife employees ask like, hey, could I just tag along with you on a hunt to see how it works? Because even though they work for the organization, it doesn't mean that they're a hunter. Yep. So there's different ways that you can get out there and learn. I am always amazed by some of the courageous people that just take it upon themselves to go do this and then head out there on their own. Because as you said, like it, learning to field dress your first animal, like that's a process. And I show videos in class, you know, that, that kind of helps you, but it's not anything like actually Absolutely. being out there and doing it yourself. And when I went and spoke in Ohio one year and this young lady, I think she was 18 at the time, but she came up to me after the panel and she said, you know, I, I'm a, the oldest one of four kids and my mom works nights and I, so I watch them, but I want to learn how to hunt. And that's why she had been at this, it was a bow hunting super show that she had come and she wanted to listen to the women's panel. And she's like, what do I do? Like, I want to, I want to go hunt ducks. And she had a shotgun and, you know, she's got all this stuff. She had done her hunter ed. And I, she said, there's this neighbor that has some ducks on a pond and I pass it every day. And, and I said, well, just go on, knock on the door and ask if you can hunt there. And maybe they'll offer to go and sit out there with you. Well, she got in touch with me later. 
And she did go ask to hunt. They gave her permission, but they didn't say they would go hunt with her. So she was out there by herself. She shot three ducks. And I was like, well, was it like, you know, because you have to know if you can shoot males or females and how many. And she's like, nope, I had checked that out. I got the, you know, she had shot two drakes and a hen. And so she was legal and all this stuff. But I was just like, how awesome for this 18 year old young lady to take it upon herself. And I was like, yes, (laughs) you can do it. (laughs) Yes. And birds are a lot easier to clean and feel dress and figure out just get to the meat than a deer or I wouldn't even yes. want to start with an elk honestly but yeah because yeah, that's people always ask like what should I start with and I'm like go on a pheasant hunt where you're like with five or six other people and right. they can talk you through what you're doing you know right. and stuff like that so group hunts on Facebook there's usually advertising about group hunts and women specific hunts and I actually on my website I have a guide to questions to ask when booking a guided hunt because okay. I've ran into a lot they're of people. They're not all equal. They're not yeah, all equal. They're, they're like, it was the worst guide ever. And I'm like, they're like, we stayed in a cabin with a dirt floor. And it's like, well, did you ask where you were going to stay? Like what, you know, we have these expectations. So that's why I wrote the guide is to help people work through that and understand the millions of questions to ask when they're going so that you don't just have this grandiose expectation and (laughs) you might pay a grandiose price for that if they offer it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like the hunting guide stuff, um, if you're not having like a group, it it can get expensive, which is another limitation to private hunts, private property. But there's a lot that goes into that people don't understand with the land management, feeding, putting on plots. I mean, there's so much to hunting that they've invested that, you know, into their land. And so you can hunt public land. I haven't done it yet, but I'm, I don't envy the people that do that because there's so much to that of where are you, what's legal, how to pack it out. I I don't... (laughs) Again, yeah. I'm not stronger than these people out there doing those things. <laughs> you have to learn. And I, I don't envy that. That's just, yeah. Well, and one thing, if you're going to go with a guide, you can let them know, like, I'm new. I want to learn. Teach me as much as you can. And right. so we we used to full-blown guide on for service. We did everything. And now we've cut back. We just do a few private land hunts a year. And it, so that's different. But when you're headed out there, if people would tell me that, I'm like, okay, I'll teach you how to find the tracks, how to find the scat, how to find, you know, I'm going to teach you the, as much as I can in what little time we have to try to get you going on your own. Whereas some of them, they're just like, nope, you're just coming and we're not teaching you anything. Yeah. But no matter who you go with, following the the rules and the laws is your responsibility. Don't yeah. count on your guide to help you follow the rules. Like you need to study that before you go. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. So I know we've talked about a lot of things with the hunting, but that stuff intrigues me because there's a lot I don't know. There's a ton. I don't know. <laughs> so you're a badass. <laughs> so congrats. <laughs> I don't know how you do all of that. Um, I know we have some time left, but I wanted to talk about switching gears, like your, your writing and your journalism and your advocacy and stuff. Um, for you, like how important is it? Two things for you to, to be able to write and have your voice out there, but how important is it too for you to see other maybe youngsters or other women writers out there sharing a voice, sharing their knowledge and showing the world too. Cause we've talked about this <laughs> offline and online, you know, how, how we are also knowledgeable, even though we might not look it or we're not, a, you know, a male in this industry, um, that there is other knowledge out there, I guess. Yeah. I think it's super important to get more people involved. And I'm a member of and a former board member for the Professional Outdoor Media Association. And I get a lot more youngsters in there where there's actually scholarship programs for that some of them to go to the conferences and stuff like that. 
Um, but it's super important to have the younger voices because the the image, I mean, it's nice to have me, a, a, you know, a middle-aged woman that goes and talks to a legislator. But with SCI, we were just in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago, and there were, I think, 11 of us from Colorado that went to talk to our congressmen and senators. And when we went to talk, we also had this young lady, Meredith, she's 20 years old. And, you know, we're all standing there and we're talking. And then when she would bring up something, you wouldn't believe the focus that went to her. And she was, she's very articulate. She's educated. She's, you know, and that's part of what I think is important. Like, okay, we don't just need any youngsters spewing nonsense. Like you need to know what you're talking about. And I think that's very important. I, I do know there's some in the industry that don't know what a choke is and they're talking about shotguns and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but these legislators, they wanted to hear what the younger generation is thinking and what their views are and something for us in the gun world, not just hunting, but in firearms is that you have the, what is it, David Hogg from Florida or whatever. He's the, the mom's demand young guy that's out there. They have a lot of them out there. Whereas we don't have as many young people in our industry that are that are heading to talk to legislators and speak their voices. But we need more. We do have a few. I actually, with the DC project, we've got a few that have started in high school and now that are, you know, older, that are still working in the industry. But if we could just have more people and actually I should say just in general, more of us need to speak up in a, in a strong, respectful, educated manner. Right. Right. You know, and that's the the politics side. Like how does someone even kind of get started in going to speak to those those people. I mean, like, I know I've sent emails before, right, and s- expressed my opinion on things, but not enough as showing up to the Capitol or getting invited to certain places to speak. How does someone even get into the politics world of that? Um, well, as a writer, the GOP invited me to Capitol Hill to speak on uh, the universal background checks because we've had that in Colorado for several years. Mm-hmm. And I'd written an op-ed about the universal background checks and they invited me out there to speak on on the issue. And that was my first time to DC. I had been to the Capitol here in Colorado for a sportsman's day at the Capitol. And what they do is there's the sportsman's caucus. And on that one, one day a year, there's sportsman's day at the Capitol. And I thought I live almost seven hours from the Capitol here. And I was headed up to see my in-laws that live near there. And I was like, oh, while I'm there, I'm going to go and join all these sportsmen and I'm going to hang out with everybody. And when I showed up there, there were nine, nine people there. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so this is what is happening. And things have improved like this year, especially in Colorado with gun issues. A lot more people are showing up. And when uh, we had a threat to bobcats and mountain lion hunting and people showed up, but it's not in the numbers that you see from the opposition. And so we just need to keep growing that and keep working at it. But what you do is um, in Colorado, we have the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association and they'll put out a thing like we're going to be at the Capitol on this day. Go show up. You don't have to speak. 
just be there and show presence because the numbers make a difference. And so that's one way to get involved. You can, um, as I said, the GOP is not going to invite everybody to go speak. Right. I've never been invited again after that. Maybe I didn't do well. I don't know. I'm gonna, but um, <laughs> great. No. no, it was it was okay. I was terrified, though. I will tell you, yeah. it's okay to be scared. And this is something I don't know if you and I talked about this or who somebody recently we talked about this. It's okay to be scared because if you're scared, it means you want to do well. So yeah. don't look at being scared or, you know, your heart's racing and you're worried about doing bad, that's actually a good thing because it means you want to do good. So try to like reverse your mindset into thinking that's a good thing right. because your first time speaking, my, my friend, Jesse, he just went and spoke on one of the gun bills last year. And I felt so bad for him because I could tell he's just choked up and, you know, whatever, but he did great. And now he's been, you get better each time you do it. So if you just go show up, watch, learn, and then show up, if you want to speak, sign up to speak. And if you don't, don't, it's okay, but yeah. <laughs> get involved. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I think we did talk about that because just showing up was half the battle and being yeah nervous or scared is, is okay. Like you said, we uh, fuel that for <laughs> whatever we're trying to do, which is hard yeah. Yeah. If you weren't worried, like before your first competition, were you worried? Yeah. Oh. Cause you want to do well, but if you weren't, um, I, then you had to be concerned. If you have a little <laughs> cocky problem or an ego problem, if you're showing up like, I'm going to crush this, like, <laughs> no, <laughs> give it a stage exactly. or two and it'll uh, sink in that you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> so, um, well, I know we talked about a lot too, and I know we're almost at time here, but I did want to give you a little bit of space too to talk about, you know, our Ruger Rendezvous event that we went to. Um, we got to learn a lot from Gunsight Academy. You've been there before, which is really cool. Um, and just talk a little bit about the training that we got to experience and what you kind of felt going in versus what you came, you know, out of the event with. Yeah. Well, going into the event, I was super excited to be invited because to go to Gunsight is a big deal. And there's so many uh, women out there that could be invited. So I was like, this is super cool. I was excited that I could be in one of the lineup to go. And also Jen and Narissa used to sponsor one of my columns, you know, Girls With Guns did. And so it was neat to be back with them because I hadn't seen them in a few years, especially with the shutdown of the country or the world. It's like some people, you became so disconnected. So I just love seeing people in person. So I was excited right. about that. And then to go to Gunsight, I was excited to train with a link because when I had been there before, I didn't train with her. And actually Gary, who helped us, I had trained with him and I've trained with some other guys there, but never with her. So I was excited to train with her. I know her personally as like a friend, a colleague in the industry, and she's an amazing person. So I was like, I want to learn how she teaches. And that's something that so many of us in the class were instructors. And what I do is I always try to get key words and see how they handle personalities, see how they handle situations. And so I can take that back. And if I ever come up to, you know, in a class, you never know, like you get this one oddball and you're like, oh my God, what do I say to this person? You know? <laughs> so I was excited to just learn some of that from her. And, and then also the different pieces of gear that Girls With Guns has now, some of those positions that we drew from I had practiced before and some I hadn't. And so any training at all, I, I always embrace it because I'm, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you've forgotten because yeah. you forgot. And so anytime I can go train, I love it. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I know we talked about the gun. So we have the Ruger LC9. Is that right? Uh, or was it the Max 9? Max 9. I think it was the Max 9. Max 9. I was going to say, I think the LC is the old one. It was the Max 9. <laughs> I keep talking to Jen about her LC9. She loves that gun. So, you know, mm-hmm. I know you said that that gun fit you really well because that was the other thing. You know, when you're training, you find a gun that works for you or find out in training that that gun that you do have doesn't work for you. So, like, how were you surprised, you know, getting to train with the Ruger, how it fit your hand, the, the trigger was amazing. Like, what were your feelings on that? Yeah. So I'm not going to lie. I'll just tell you straight up, like going into when I learned they were Ruger guns, you know, Ruger rendezvous, I was like, okay. Cause I have a Ruger gun that failed. And ever since then I've had a negative view. And that's something like what we have to trust our gear. We have to like our gear and stuff like that. But like, okay, it's a new gun that they're doing. It's a totally different model. The one that I had that failed was a 380. And so I'm like, just go in with an open mind. And that's how I always work. There's a few guns I've trained with at writer's events that aren't my favorite guns, but you can still use them. And I was completely mind blown at that Max 9. Like I'm excited when we get them. I'm excited to have it and to use it and train with it and even carry it. Yay. Because it it did fit me well. I loved the trigger. Um, I, I want to shoot with it some more where we're not just doing gears so that I can, you know, like, oh, it's wonderful. And let's see actually what pluses and minuses there are. Right. You know, because some of the girls beside me, they had some um, slide malfunctions. And I don't know if it was their grips or, you know, how that goes. But there were two of them that kept having malfunctions. And I was like, this that's interesting because we all had the same ammunition. So I, I'm excited to do some more shooting with it. For me, the little little iron knobby thingies on that gun was like, hmm, I missed my <laughs> red dot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, iron sights. I haven't shot iron sights, I don't know, two years, maybe, at least now. So for me, I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah see and i'm i almost always have iron sights something that i am curious is if i would want to trade those out for something else or not and you know stuff like that yeah yeah no i think that's great um and for me like that was the first time for me working with all the clothing but like you said you were familiar with the clothing you wore you worn it while hunting right their hunting gear as well yeah so i've had their hunting gear what i hadn't had was that pocket in the jacket that you and i talked about where they we um, could put that crossbreed holster inside there. I hadn't used one of those and I wish they would make some type of like a sport coat or just a more casual jacket. Well, maybe not so casual. That's what I mean. A not so casual jacket. Yeah. You could wear <laughs> with, like could, security or something. Like yeah. That yeah. I could even wear to maybe business conferences or something like that, you know? Um, cause the one that I got was the camouflage and it looks like it has a gray hoodie under it. Like it's yeah. all one piece, but it's not my style at all. It's way too casual. But I would literally wear something like that every day. Like I'm headed to business meetings the next two days and I'll have a blazer on. And what I have is a chest rig from Falco that I'll wear under that. And okay. so, you know, it's like. <laughs> you tend to make a, a sport jacket or something. I, I told her, I was like, I would totally wear it every day. The, the other one, uh, maybe I'll wear like out here when I'm irrigating and stuff like that. Because I actually <laughs> do carry on the ranch too. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I talk about that a lot with people. Um, I, I mowed my lawn last week and I, it also sounds silly, but again, it's really not is like, I always carry a gun while I'm doing yard work. So whether I normally do appendix carry, but when I'm out mowing the lawn, like I'll do like a four o'clock cause it's just a little bit more comfortable if I'm bending over doing whatever. 
Um, but simple stuff like that, guys, there's not just people out there, but there are animals. I just saw a snake mm-hmm. on the trail hiking, uh, last week with a friend of mine and thank God we both had firearms. Not that we would have to do anything, but you just don't know if there's ever going to be that situation that you find yourself in where you need a tool to neutralize whatever's coming at you. Cause I'm afraid of wildlife. I don't know about you, but there are some times when I've been scared by wildlife where I know that they could mess me up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Carrie, you know, the only time I've shot something in self-defense was when I was hunting and an elk charged me. (laughs) Okay. Test your skills. (laughs) And and there's people out there that are now stopping to video those occurrences rather than self, like having defending themselves. They're videoing themselves by bears. I saw like the cheetah or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like, do you want to record your death or do you want to defend yourself? Yeah. Blows my mind, Mia. Um, too much TV. <laughs> too much, yes. So I know we're at the end here. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about? Is there any final pieces of advice or words of wisdom you want to leave people here that are listening? Well, for your listeners, I would just say that if you're curious or interested, just like with firearms, if you've already gotten into firearms, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, but if you're curious about things, just find a way to reach out to somebody for help. If there's somebody you work with, if there's somebody in your community, like just reach out and ask them for tips and advice and don't be afraid or intimidated because it's all fun and you can do it if you get out there. Yep. And you might be intimidated at first, but that's okay. Cause you have to get over that. We all started there. Yeah. <laughs> Mia, what's your uh, website and what are your social media links for people to learn a little bit more? And especially that guide that you mentioned on your website. <laughs> so my website is miaanstein.com and you can just kind of, I believe that guides on the shop tab and you can check that out. And my handles on social media, I'm so creative. It's Mia Anstein. I'm on most social media outlets. <laughs> you can find me anywhere. <laughs> love it. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge, especially in the hunting arena. That fascinates me. Congratulations on all of your success and everything you've built. And I'm honored that we have you as a voice too in our community. So thank you for standing up, for speaking to a lot of really intimidating rooms, I'm sure. Um, but thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Reticle Up podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Follow along on social media at Reticle Up or 3 Gun Kenzie.